everybody. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas. Welcome back to Cash's Corner. We got a ram-packed episode today. Jan, where are we going to get started? Well, I think we have to go to the Twitter Files 9, and that's actually <laughs> dubbed the Fauci Files, or at least the first part of the Twitter Files related to COVID censorship. We have this moment where uh, then Deputy Counsel at Twitter, uh, Jim Baker, basically mm -hmm. tries to censor a tweet from President Trump when he's recovering from COVID. He's saying, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. And Yoel Roth has to talk down, as far as I can tell, has to talk down Jim Baker from trying to censor this. What are your thoughts? I mean, there's so many places to start there, but let's do a basic timeline. You know, when President Trump got COVID, it was October of 2020. We were in the throes of COVID. And it's always optimistic to hear from the commander in chief to say, look, I got this virus and it's beatable and I'm healthy and I'm doing well. And that's sort of the optimism you want exuding out of the White House. So to attack that blindly uh, doesn't make any sense. But then you have to go to the actor that's attacking it, and that's James Baker. And as you know, Jan, we've discussed extensively, he's one of the Russiagate architects, former FBI general counsel, who launched a faulty FISA with false information and lied to a federal court. So the fact that he, after he gets fired uh, from the FBI for those abuses, lands a job at Twitter as the number two lawyer, and now as the lawyer is proposing why Donald Trump's uh, verbiage about how he is trying to be upbeat about beating COVID and telling the world that and the country that is somehow to be censored legally and he has to be walked back by none other than Yoel Roth. Well, let's remind everybody who Yoel Roth is. Yoel Roth is one of the senior figures at Twitter and we now know Yoel Roth participated selectively in this unlawful or unethical at least censorship of a lot of people who shared President Trump's views, especially around an election time. Um, and we've talked about Hunter Biden's laptop. He was involved with that. And so was James Baker. And so was Vijay Agata. So the fact that James Baker has to be walked off this quote unquote cliff of censorship for President Trump by Yoel Roth really tells you something that the lawyer couldn't figure it out. I don't believe that. I believe Jim Baker is an incredibly smart uh, human being who is cunning and deceptively so and was trying to put on a guise by saying, hey guys, did you miss this one? Uh, maybe we should censor this. And Yoel Roth coming in over the top saying, even he couldn't get that one across the finish line because there was nothing wrong with it. And that's the key, Jan. This statement by the president, there was, along with many others, there was nothing wrong with it, should never have been censored. And it didn't violate any policies that Twitter put up on quote unquote COVID health warnings and vaccination warnings and things like that. It was the message you wanted to hear from your president at the time of a pandemic uh, to reinforce to the citizenry that the disease was beatable even if you're an elderly uh, person, it was beatable. And that was something that I think President Trump wanted to stress to um, the citizenry around America. And no surprise, James Baker tried to throttle it. The thing that I thought of when I was looking at this was, you know, the pervasiveness of this fear narrative, which was so grossly mm -hmm. disproportionate to the realities of COVID in this country. Right. And it's sort of like, you know, this is this is the president reassuring people this this type of narrative that I saw in that tweet is the kind of narrative that I would like to see from public health authorities mm -hmm. uh, most of the time. Right. Like this is there. It does not help <laughs> to have heightened cortisol levels in the midst of a pandemic. It doesn't it doesn't help people being afraid, cowering in their homes. This is not good for your health, you know, too, I might add. So th th this is really bizarre. 
Yeah, and let's just rewind the tape again. If you remember, uh, you know, when Fauci, before Fauci became Fauci, that is the partisan, and it went on a partisan diatribe, you would remember him in the beginning when no one knew who he was, and he was the NIH number one medical expert for the United States and arguably in the world, um, coming out and saying, positive things saying we can beat this this is beatable this is not going to get you down did they censor fauci or did they talk about censoring fauci in the beginning i mean it was one of the only things fauci ever said that was truthful and accurate and correct and we'll get into some of his other stuff in a minute but you see the double standard here right um if say a a, a candidate joe biden had said something like hey this disease is beatable and we can win and we will overcome this would they censor him no they did a selective targeting operation, which has now been put on full blast thanks to the release of the Twitter files. But we got a long way to go, Jan. You know, I'm, I want to highlight another type of censorship, and this could really crystallize something for me in my mind, although I generally, generally have been thinking along these lines. Some of the tweets that are highlighted that were censored are those by uh, Martin Koldorf, you know, one of the world's mm -hmm. leading epidemiologists at Harvard at the time, actually the designer of many of the vaccine safety protocols mm -hmm. or part designer that, that are in use uh, in this country and all over the world. And basically, he has this tweet where he's talking about, you know, his look at the data and he's saying, number one, basically, you don't need to vaccinate children. And he knew that very, very early on, right, at, to, to start. And he also, the other thing that he's talking about is natural immunity, that, that natural immunity mm -hmm. is, is, is something that's real and robust. And both of these uh, things, uh, the, the tweet with both of these things is censored. And that's connected now with another tweet that's later in the files, which is basically showing a study that mRNA vaccination is associated with some cardiac harms for children, right? So the combination, and th this is all in this one thread by David Zwieg, and the, the combination of this, it's unquestionable to me, this cost lives. Absolutely. And it's just one tragic example of politicized censorship costing lives of children, of adults, of Americans, and of those people, and of citizens of the world. So if they were censoring um, this type of tweet on this type of individual who's, as you said, arguably one of the leading epidemiologists in the world, what else are we going to uncover that was censored that led to the deaths? of innocent um, Americans, of innocent people around the world. And that's the tragedy of it all. Again, you see the two-tier system, the double standard in the mainstream media, and this is just another example. Let's jump in with another tweet here. Okay, and this is actually, that's Elon Musk. We're taping on Wednesday. Elon Musk last night posted something that opens up all sorts of questions, right, um, that, that many have already been thinking about. He, he writes about gain of function essentially being another way of saying bioweapon. Gain of function research, of course, being, um, you know, sort of the intentional uh, making mm -hmm. of a virus more deadly. He talks about how Fauci authored a paper in 2012 arguing for gain of function research that Fauci restarted this. And at the same time, you know, Twitter had an internal Slack channel that was, he says, unironically called Fauci Fan Club. There's so yeah, many so, pieces in here. And yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we got the Fauci Fan Club, the Slack channel. But let's start with gain of function research. Most of our audience knows what that is, but it's just fancy for uh, putting money into biological programs that sort of basically create viruses and then look for their vaccinations. And that's why this is encapsulated in sort of this bioweapons verbiage that we see out there a lot. And remember Fauci came on the scene and said, oh no, American dollars were not put into the Wuhan laboratory and were not put towards gain of function research. Well, we now know that's a lie. 
And, you know, once you have the head medical expert in the United States set that out, that marker out there, and we now know he knowingly lied, it wasn't just like a mistake, um, he wanted to set a political narrative, it becomes so deadly for people who are listening to him to believe anything else he says because he's nuked any credibility he ever had. When COVID broke out, I was the deputy director of national intelligence under Rick Grinnell, the number two at the IC. And we had informed President Trump uh, on the classified intelligence we had on COVID origins. And you know, a week or two later, President Trump rolled out the China ban. And basically the media set itself on fire, calling him a racist. And of course, as it turns out, we and President Trump acted on facts and intelligence and it proved to be correct. And they acted on hyperbole. And now we know Fauci helped them. Now we learn, not only while all that was going on, we have Twitter having Slack channels with uh, people who are Fauci lovers. And we now know those are people who basically hate Donald Trump. So what's a Slack channel, Leon, for a lot of people who don't know? And these, this term has come out to, in the FBI space too, which we'll get to in a second. But basically a Slack channel is just, you remember instant messaging back in the day? You would you know, sit on your computer and it was called AIM when it first came out. You'd shoot a message over to so-and-so, whether they were sitting in a, a couple of houses away, a town away, or on the other side of the country. That's all a Slack channel is. It's internal messaging that you put on certain communications, this channel, because it's really never gonna be made public. And that's the key, Jan. The fact that there was an entire fan club based on Fauci's lies and they wanted to glorify him for his lies because it was helping make Donald Trump look like the enemy, which was their goal, shows you that the world's largest media platform, Twitter, was slanted in such a degree that they didn't want to put the truth out on this matter and so many others. So it's disturbing to see that the Slack channel existed. Hopefully Elon will come out and put out the actual contents of the Slack channel. But for me, what's more disturbing, Jan, is a revelation that FBI agents had these Slack channels too. So now you have a cross communication going on with the private sector and the FBI on censorship, on COVID origins, on Fauci, on gain of function research. You know, I, I still say we have an incomplete, incomplete release by Elon Musk of these, of these Twitter matters. Why isn't that Slack channel information been released? Why don't we know the depths of the FBI involvement? We've been calling for it on this show for months because we know the FBI was so much more involved than what's been revealed, this minimal $3.5 million contract, way more. And we know there was a day-to-day -day deluge of communications between Twitter, Headshed, and the FBI uh, task force on election security and COVID and what else is out there. So I still think this is a partial cover-up operation, for lack of a better word, by Elon because he hasn't put everything out there. And the question remains to me, Jan, why? Why, if he has come in to say, I want to put a full and clear transparency effort forward, has he failed to do just that? Well, I want to focus on this, uh, you know, bioweapon part uh, of Elon's tweet because this is what it made me think of. You know, a lot of our insane response to COVID starts mm -hmm. to make more sense. I mean, basically normal pandemic, conventional pandemic, tried and tested pandemic guidelines were thrown out the window and this sort of new shelter in place uh, policy was, was put in along with all sorts of other measures and that turned into further coercive measures later down the road. Now, here's the question, right? 
if now from from my viewpoint right no one knows what the ccp up is up to we've known that it's the chinese communist party has a bioweapons program it's very high on its priority list we know that everything is dual use so we know the wuhan of the institute of virology absolutely is going to be doing you know military uh, related research so all a lot of this actually makes a ton more sense if we understand the response as a biodefense response as opposed to a health response. So, and you were in the middle of this as deputy DNI, and then later, you know, uh, or at the time of the vac, all the way through to the vaccine rollout, where you you were already uh, chief of staff at DoD. So, w what do you think? Well, it's a national security issue, and for me, that's my wheelhouse, Jan. And you know, we always um, have. Uh, well, at least under President Trump, we had a great intelligence uh, collection operation against all of our enemies. Um, the, you know, and the CCP was, you know, right there at the top of the list, if not always at the top of the list. And whatever national security interests they were interfering with uh, when it came to us, America, whether it was gain-of-function research, bioweapons, um, actual uh, military programs, you know, President Trump made it no secret that, you know, we were going to focus our national security apparatus on those intent, intent on harming American interests. And the CCP in this matter is a, is a, is a great example. And, you know, I, I still don't have the ability to get into all the, the details of the information that we made these decisions on. Maybe one day Congress can release that in the coming months when the, when the gavels flip uh, for the House. But until that day, I can just tell you that we continued like we did with COVID origins, like we did with other measures taken against the CCP, be it tariffs or be it um, military uh, defensive operations. We made those decisions based on actual intelligence and bioweapons is not something to be taken lightly. And we know and you know, and our audience knows the CCP has no rule book. They just have a book that says, how do we get after our enemies? They don't care about ethics. They don't really care about anyone who dies that gets in their way. I mean, remember, this is a country that has three separate genocides going on as we speak. So the leadership of the CCP has one interest in mind, themselves. So we gotta remind our audience, that's the lens they look at it through. And the lens we, we defended it against was whatever it takes that we can lawfully defend American citizens against any threat put forward by the CCP. And I think we were very successful. And as you said, now people are going back and saying, wow, look at how bad the CCP wanted to come after the United States of America. Well, now you have an impetus as to why we acted so harshly against the Chinese Communist Party. Well, you know, let's jump forward a little bit to, so now uh, op Operation Warp Speed, uh, basically the quick creation of these COVID mm -hmm. genetic vaccines and, and related vaccines um, is basically in motion. Um, it's extremely fast. You know, we know from data that's been released that all sorts of corners were cut. We don't know if it was intentional or by accident. We know there was pressure to get some, some sort of uh, uh, treatment out uh, quickly. We also know that, that regular forms, conventional forms of treatment by uh, things which in the past you weren't able to name on Twitter, like ivermectin, hydroxy, and another, I think there's another 18 drugs that are now, that, that are used sort of successfully uh, to, to treat COVID, especially in the early stages. Um, they're, they're all, all of this is kind of happening. DOD was charged with facilitating the rollout of the vaccines towards the end of the Trump presidency. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? And also, you know, what, what about you yourself? Uh, what's your VAC status? Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. So, so 
we were charged and just to remind people in the you know this was at the you know the heights of the of the covid virus <clears throat> um a lot of the country and a lot of the populace was looking for a solution was looking for um an answer so that obviously they wanted people to stop dying and people to stop getting sick and we looked to the medical experts for that and the things that came to mind were of course a vaccine and in that instance uh we we the government made the decision to to try to partner up with the private pharmaceutical companies to see if there was a vaccine that we could roll out and and what we did was we went to the military because logistically on there is no other private organization or company that has the logistical capacity to move and engage with the private sector and then distribute the vaccine in a safe way throughout the country. You literally need planes, trains, automobiles, a cyber infrastructure network, um, and a communication system that's able to be up and running and engage with the private sector. And the only place that that could happen is the Department of Defense. And when I was chief of staff over there, we had Operation Warp Speed, which uh, the president charged DOD with its logistical rollout. And I will always say, and I'll defend to this day, that the men and women in uniform executed that plan, Operation Warp Speed, um, to the highest professional degree. It was really a monumental feat for them to implement the logistical capabilities to distribute the what would be millions of vials of vaccines across the country and around the world in record speed. That was what they were charged with. Now, that is entirely separate and apart with any sort of talk about a mandate, which I remind our audience, there was no talk or implementation of a mandate under the Trump administration, especially not for the member, men and women in our uniform services. And when we rewind the clock, and I was chief of staff in November um, of 20, uh, 2020 there, me and the Secretary of Defense and the leadership at the Department of Defense were charged in overseeing Operation Warp Speed and making sure it was implemented. But what we were also charged with was a mission. And that is uh, the no-fail mission of the Department of Defense. And we had the opportunity to decide whether or not we were going to receive the COVID vaccine when it first came out. And I said, you know, I remember looking at the Secretary of Defense, uh, Chris Miller at the time, and saying, you know, sir, in, in, this is a leadership decision. If we cannot be the ones who take our mission forward, then we should not be in the position to offer the vaccine to the men and women in uniform and the civilian population if we're unwilling to do so. So what we did was we took the mission and made it our priority, and we call it mission first, and I took the vaccine. But we never mandated it to anyone in the uniform services or anywhere else. What we wanted to do was show as leadership of the Department of Defense and as President Trump's uh, implemented leadership at the DOD that we were willing to back our position. Now that's a separate question from looking at it two years down the road on the efficacies of the vaccine and the intelligence that we now have, which we didn't have back then. But I still say, and um, I still agree with President Trump on this one, that the Operation Warp Speed itself was the right decision to do and was a success. And I believe that uh, the DOD leadership, including the Secretary of Defense and I's decision to take the vaccine was the right decision in terms of leadership, because if we weren't willing to do it, then we should have stepped aside. And, but the mandate decision is, is a totally separate, separate conversation. And whether or not I would have taken the vaccine had I had all the intelligence that I do now and all the facts and all the studies, that's also a separate matter. So I remind our audience that don't just Monday morning quarterback this thing, look at it through the prism of the situation we were in 
in the throes of COVID at the end of the Trump presidency, trying to get the American populace in the world a remedy for a pandemic that had broken out um, as a result of what I believe was uh, the Chinese's and the CCP's doing. One way or another, the CCP lied about it extensively. And, and also, you know, there's, there's basically all sorts of data points, whatever the origin, we don't need to kind of litigate that part. It's more mm -hmm. like their response to it clearly made it yeah. a bioweapon. This is something that Gordon Chang talks about. And I can imagine how, uh, you know, you in those roles would have been looking at it and, in response. So I, maybe disambiguate something for me really quick. Um, mm -hmm. So warp speed, there's warp speed, the development of the vaccine itself is part of warp speed. And then of course the deployment is also a part of warp speed, which you were involved in. Who is Who had oversight over the development? So the development was, of course, entirely the private sector, pharmaceutical industries. And at the time, the names will sound familiar now, Pfizer and Moderna were the two that were engaged in the development of the vaccine. And so while there was crossover between the private sector and the Department of Defense, the medical experts and the doctors that created it were in the private sector. And the Department of Defense folded in to engage in the logistical rollout of getting the vaccine out to the population. And so that's sort of the delineation. Um, it's not, as far as I'm, I, I'm aware of, I should say, the DOD did not have a operational uh, lift in developing the vaccine. That was the pharmaceutical companies. So Cash, you kind of spoke to this already, uh, but there's just a lot of people in hindsight, who believe mm -hmm. that Operation War Speed was just a colossal mistake at many levels. How do you react to that? Yeah, I, I get and I appreciate that in hindsight. As I said, it's easy two years down the road to Monday morning quarterback it with the intelligence that's come out with the facts and studies that have come out. We're winding back the clock. We had limited information and we were relying on the professionalism of big pharmaceutical companies um, to roll out what a large portion of the public at the time wanted which was a solution, a vaccine to this deadly virus, this pandemic. So I still think at the time, Operation Warp Speed was the correct decision to make. And it's a distinction that needs to be made that there was no mandate attached to it, not for the private sector, not for the government. So that's the decision. It's a hard decision to make at the time. And you know, just think of it this way. What if, Jan, we had a vaccine in a timely fashion in the throes of COVID and President Trump shut it down and said, we're not doing it, we're not offering it. You know, I think that would be a much harsher, much more drastic position to have taken, the incorrect one. And I don't think the American public would have viewed that kindly to say the least. So it always helps to flip the script a little to, to put the light on why I feel the way I do uh, about the decisions we made then. So looking at the response to the pandemic, you basically had, you know, Dr. Birx and Dr. Fauci running the show. President Trump brought in other experts which offered countering views like Dr. Scott Atlas, uh, Dr. Paul Alexander, who, you know, turns out had the right idea, right? Once, once again, looking in hindsight, and they were kind of, you know, railroaded out. And I'm very curious, you know, why that might have happened. Yeah, so it's no surprise, you know, with my experience in the Trump administration, one of the things I value most about President Trump is that he brought in differing opinions on any issue. 
national security, defense, law enforcement, education, and of course here we're talking COVID, COVID origins, and the vaccine. And so when he brought in additional people, that was, as far as I'm concerned, sort of how he operated. Now I'm also aware, you know, without a direct, I didn't have direct communications with these individuals at the White House on a day-to-day -day basis on how they were counseling the president and what decisions to make. But what I do know is that sometimes, you know, and you have to remember who these people are that, that Dr. Atlas and company were up against. Dr. Fauci and Burks were dubbed the number one and two experts on COVID um, with that stamp. And Dr. Fauci specifically with the title, for lack of a better position, is the number one NIH medical expert in the country um, was able to, I think, in retrospect, take his sort of megaphone and shove the other people aside. And the media was, of course, willing. And now we know that Fauci's position was to basically glorify himself in the media and attack President Trump um, while putting the facts aside. And so that's what I believe happened in terms of why there was this um, horse race and why there was winners and losers when it comes to um, the, the, the final decisions uh, during the pandemic. And from what Elon says, a lot more will be coming out uh, from these you know, Fauci files or the next batch of Twitter files. And hopefully, as uh, we've been calling for on this show, we'll get uh, much larger, uh, comprehensive uh, data dump sometime in the near future. Yeah, here, you know, I forgot to add this thing too. You know, Elon released the so-called information that there was a Slack channel and that this information was communicated on the Slack channels, but he refused to highlight the Twitter employees who were engaged in these efforts. So again, Jan, you know, while I appreciative that he's putting out some of this information, I still have to question why he's not reaching the full transparency effort he said he was going to achieve by naming the people who are participating in these conversations, by naming the FBI, by naming their Slack channel content, because it would be sent to Twitter and they would have it. So again, we're calling for the full release. The window is closing, Jan, because the attention span and the life cycle of this is going to leave us soon. We'll be in 2023 and we'll be talking about something else. Well, something else that uh, is being talked about right now, or, or perhaps not being talked about enough because it was dropped kind of basically over the Christmas holidays, is this 845-page report <laughs> by the January 6th committee. And, you know, I certainly haven't read through the whole thing, but one thing I did notice is that the testimony you gave to the January 6th committee is nowhere to be seen in there. It's not, Jan. And to remind the audience, I was the first person subpoenaed by the January 6th committee the legal bills on that one uh, were, were in excess of $250,000. And we've gone and done the sort of the uh, clinical analysis of what happened on January 6th on past episodes of Cash's Corner. So I encourage our audience to check it out. But the important thing to remember here is that this is a congressional committee that says they were dedicated to oversight and finding the truth. How do you do that when you exclude critical information and testimony and transcripts from the likes of me, the chief of staff at the Department of Defense when January 6th occurred. Why isn't that information released? My lawyers have been demanding the January 6th committee release that information. And they keep coming back to us in writing and I hope they call us out because we got the receipts. Oh, we're getting to it and basically we don't have a timeline. But the, but the ironic thing is, Jan, they would send us notification that would basically read, 
oh, you and your counsel have 24 hours to review the transcript and then we're going to release it. And then we would, we would jump through, um, you know, monstrous hoops to get that done in a, in a totally what we call unfair fashion. And still no release. Why do they not want my testimony regarding the events leading up to January 6th? And here's another question. They said they wanted the information from everyone. Where are Nancy Pelosi's text? Why didn't she testify before the January 6th committee? As we now know, unequivocally, as I said previously, um, and to the committee, that Nancy Pelosi and Mayor Bowser were the ones who shut down the request for the National Guard days before January 6th. That singular event and decision in time was the one that is solely responsible for excluding the presence and deployment of the National Guard on the lead up to January 6th, including on the day of January 6th. And we've talked about how different January 6th would have turned out with 10,000 National Guardsmen and women surrounding the United States Capitol. So this committee has done a selective investigation to meet whatever headlines it wants to do. And what we have to do is get out there and remind Americans that these are the same people, most of them, who perpetuated the Russiagate hoax, the fraud, I should say, and took it to the media. And now they're taking it again to the media. And they also lobbied a recommendation, and I don't want to include this um, as a former federal prosecutor, they recommended charges against President Trump for insurrection. Well, again, where is my transcript? You asked me these questions under oath. You have forbidden me from speaking about them publicly until this testimony is released. And unlike you, I play by the rules. Um, and we did it in Russiagate. When Devin and I investigated, we didn't leak information. We played by the rules and released in a timely and lawful and ethical fashion. And I'm going to continue that uh, today. And I'm sure I could just sit here, Jan, on our show and just tell you everything. But that is not how you conduct constitutional congressional oversight. And I'm sure some of our audience is saying, just do it anyway. Well, that's not how I was brought up, and that's not how I'm going to do it here. But I've given you enough examples to show you that the January 6th committee is hiding information from you, from the American public. And if they truly wanted to get to the bottom of it, they would see um, to it that everything's released immediately. And this charge of insurrection, as I've said publicly, how can it logically stand? And I'll put it this way, since I can't talk about the contents of my testimony yet. How can it logically stand that President Trump ordered the transition of power from the Trump presidency to the Biden presidency? And how do I know he ordered that? Because the only person that can order it is him. The only agency or department that can execute that order is the Department of Defense, where I was chief of staff. And by regulation, the chief of staff at the Department of Defense is the head of the presidential transition for the Department of Defense. So in that, with that fact in and of itself, how could he have been inciting an insurrection, which is basically using the military to perform a coup? It is factually impossible. And I'm again calling for my transcript to be released along with every exhibit I asked to be put in there. And here's another fact. I, I asked to be included in my deposition transcript, the DOD timeline, the Capitol Police timeline, Mayor Bowser's letter, um, engagements with Nancy Pelosi in the Department of Defense, all related to um, National Guard deployment and our meetings with President Trump on the lead up uh, to January 6th were days before he authorized, as the president can only do, up to 20,000 National Guard, but the law commands and requires that a request be made and that request was shut down by Mayor Bowser and Pelosi. So there's a lot of information for the American public and the facts and truth to digest, but this committee um, is a farce 
and is preventing America from getting to the real truth. And that, at the end of the day, Jan, just hurts Americans' faith in Congress and also hurts our national security. So it's a tragic, sad ending to a committee that never wanted to get to the truth in the first place. You know, the committee did recommend that President Trump be indicted. And, uh, you know, the report, again, from the cursory view I, I, I have of it, seemed to be very, very focused on uh, material that would support that, uh, at least in their, in their description. Um, what do you think will happen with this uh, indictment recommendation? I, I don't think that uh, he'll be indicted for anything related to January 6th. It's just not factually supported. And it reminds me of, you know, the government, the FBI specifically, going to a federal court and withholding evidence of innocence or the other evidence that they had. And that's exactly what this committee's doing. They're withholding my transcript, exhibit one. They're withholding the exhibits in my transcript. What other transcripts are they withholding? <clears throat> there was hundreds, if not thousands of depositions taken. I know they haven't released all of them. They probably haven't even released half of them. And so once we get down into the weeds uh, of those transcripts, we'll know the truth. But here's what they want. They want to ram past this thing because they know they got a less than a week left. They, the Democrats in charge in the House of Representatives, then this committee will be shuttered and uh, the news cycle will have moved on and they will have gotten their headline, which is what you just said. But I don't think that headline meets the factual representations that were made to that committee. It is just that hyperbole and America should ignore it. Well, I guess we'll see what happens. Cash, it's time for our shout out. It is indeed time, Jan, for a shout out. And this week's shout out goes to Margie CJ. Thanks so much for posting your comments on our wall. And thanks everybody for participating in our live chat on a weekly basis. We've really enjoyed our back and forth we have on Friday nights. And as year 2022 comes to an end, we wanted to wish everybody a happy new year. And thanks for making Cash's Corner such a success in 2022. And we'll see you in 2023.